2: Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. How are you?
3: Look, I'm good, Peter, and I was going to uh, lead with some economics because I know you're a very positive person, but I think I'm going to ask you a question instead about food waste. Now, in the Switzer household, are you particularly thrifty when it comes to buying food? Do you just buy just enough for the meal or or is there a lot left over?
2: (laughs) <laughs> well, look. Or well, don't you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I do know because, look, I have a, a number of um, dilemmas in my life. Like, for example, I always like to try and keep my weight down. And so when, when we get, go to a shop, you know, I think. Well, you know, am I really going to eat a full tub of ricotta in a week, and can I <laughs> afford to do that? And so I do actually try and buy the smaller tub, uh, and I, and I, I do try to control my waste because I really hate it when I look into a fruit bowl and think I bought all that fantastic fruit on a weekend, and I've been so busy during the week it's now going off. So there are waste conundrums in my life, Paul. Say.
3: Let me ask you another question okay. because you know how the whose show is this? Yours or mine? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, how
3: some of the major retailers now have the—I uh, won't say the offcuts, but the unloved fruit, the fruit that's the wrong size, oh, it's yeah, blemished—and yeah, yeah. and they also have uh, the real stuff, which I is beautifully yeah. all rounded, even and, and it's, it's get been into that, yeah. Have you bought it off the sort of the no. the the The, no.
2: the, cra- the crappy <laughs> organic-looking? No, one don't do that. Particularly when it comes to bananas. I, I, if there's one blemish in a banana. Yeah, you know, I don't feel good about it. because if it's if it's bad on the outside, I'm going to bet it's pretty bad on the inside.
3: And some you people, all, I'm going to bet that you're a bit of a food waster, P. Switzer. Yeah,
2: it could be, <laughs> it could be too. Uh, look, I'm not going to admit to it. I just, uh, I'm going to leave it at I could be. What about you, Paul? I, know, I, know you're I don't really think I've had enough shopping <laughs> experience to comment. You don't even know where the kitchen <laughs> is even, in your place. Your well, po- that's right. Your poor wife has been a, a member of the slave association for a long, long time. Okay. This is a dangerous conversation. A good, let's dangerous just conversation. Let's go into the show. Let's go back
0: to economics or something. Yes, right. We are. <laughs> we're going to start
2: this, this program though, We're going to start with Shane Oliver because the growth numbers came out uh, uh, on, uh, on Wednesday uh, and, and the economy's not looking all that strong. So I'm keen to see what he thinks mm. about interest rates, about whether this economy can make a rebound in, in 2020. I think Plus, there's
3: still talk of a further interest rate cut in February, February. and some a lot of are people also saying March. So uh, oh, look, I, I, I hope know. not. Yeah, so do I, for the economy's sake. Yeah, uh,
2: without a doubt. I, I think a lot of people have a gut full of of interest rate cuts, so they're not, not going to respond. I think they're scared that the economy is so bad that there's interest rate cuts. So I hope uh, Shane gives us some good news there. Then we're going to talk to Glenn Whelans from Rabo Bank, and this is where your food waste question. This is come. where I was leading, Peter, but yes, we, we
3: stuck right. with the economics <laughs> that's that's safer right. topic. Well, there's
2: a 2019 food waste report, and Glenn's going to tell us about that. Rabo Bank, of course, is linked to the agricultural community. A, a strong mm. farmer's bank so we'll see what's going on there are we as Australians getting better at you know, managing our waste and then uh, uh, two people I know who've been Australian business people for a long time and Stephen Bartlett Bragg they've actually left Australia and they're now living in Barcelona and, and running their business from there a lot of people like the idea of it Paul I want to find out what it's really like to mm. actually try and do
3: something I mean, Barcelona is like. a fabulous city but it's a
2: of a strange one to pick, isn't it? Well, it's, it's a strange one even to pronounce. You said Barcelona. I thought it's Barcelona.
3: <laughs> yeah, <I'm laughs> sure you're right. I thought you were to give me the uh, the 40 Towers uh, line uh, yeah. for a moment there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's the show. Is it uh, Manuel. Uh, Manuel. Uh, Manuel. Yeah. Barcelona.
2: Barcelona. <laughs> that's right. So, anyway, that's, that's us mucking around before the show. All right, so joining us now is probably and arguably the most exposed economist. On the planet, Dr. Shane Oliver of AMP. How are you, Shane?
4: I'm good, Peter. You had to get that in again, didn't you?
2: Well, you (laughs) reminded me. You reminded me. And you are. And and thank God you are exposed as well. Now, Shane, uh, today's economic growth numbers um, a 0.4% number for the September quarter. Talk us through it.
4: Well, the good news is the Australian economy is still growing. All of those uh, doomsters out there have been calling a recession for the last, uh, I don't know, six, seven years now, ever since the mining boom ended, have been proven wrong yet again. Uh, The economy has continued to grow. And I I guess the number itself, 0.4%, was a little bit less than I was expecting. We thought it would be 0.5%. That said, they did revise up the... Uh, June quarter numbers from 0.5 to 0.6%. And so the annual pace of growth has perked up a little bit to 1.7%. So, what's happening here is that we are seeing continued weakness in consumer spending, housing investments, and business investments. Uh, they're all still acting as drags on the economy, a little, little bit of a positive from consumer spending, but that's offset by drags from dwelling investment and, how, and business investment. But uh, making up for that, of course, is public spending, and that's the infrastructure spending boom that we hear so much about, along with uh, a bit of a contribution from inventories, that's uh, stockpiles building up a little bit, and also uh, and also trade. So you know, the economy is still growing, not as good as it should be, not as good as it could be, um, and also concerns over the mix of growth. Um, but at least we haven't dipped into that recession that some people uh, keep talking
3: about. So talk us through, uh, Shane, the trade one, because we know that the um, agricultural sector is doing it pretty tough, but I guess this is coming from what iron ore and coal principally?
4: It is. Uh, we're seeing a mix of things helping on the, uh, the trade front, and of course that news goes hand in hand with the good news we saw yesterday where we saw the second quarter in a row of a current account surplus in Australia. And, of course, the one we saw in the June quarter was the first surplus since 1975. And that was way back before even Dog, uh, even before uh, Peter was appearing on uh, the Dog murray show. I not <laughs> think it existed back in 1975. That's true. But uh, anyway, this is the radio version mm. of Dog Mulray uh, yeah. back on Triple M. Um, now, of course, what's driving that? is uh obviously that huge mining boom we saw several years ago, that led to a huge increase in mining capacity, and so we're exporting more from our mines. So we've seen good growth in volumes. We've seen good growth in uh, or good levels of uh, iron ore prices. So some commodities have come down, some have gone up, but the iron ore price has held up at a reasonably high level. Now, it's come down from its highs, but it's still, still pretty strong. We've also seen good export volumes in areas like services, Mm -hmm. Uh, Massive numbers of students coming to study at our universities. That's now our third biggest export market is, is higher education. And, of course, the final one, which we're not hearing a lot about, but I think we will in the years ahead, and that is our superannuation funds, or our super, is having more and more exposure to global assets, to global equities, to other things like infrastructure and property globally, and that's starting to result in a flow of income back to Australia, improving what we technically call the net income Uh, side of things in terms of the current account. So all of those things have combined to give us a current account surplus for the second quarter in a row. Um, But they're also, many of those things, are helping drive this contribution to economic growth we're getting from trade with exports up solidly in the quarter, exports exports rose again by... but it's only a small rise, 0.7%, but they're up 3.3% for the year, so that contributes 0.2%. And at the same time, we did see a bit of weakness in imports. They were down slightly, and that, that also added a little bit to growth. But that, that is a good news story in these accounts, that uh, trade is a positive source of support for growth.
3: And for those who can uh, have got a little bit of memory, it was the current account deficit that led Paul Keating to declare, was it back in 1986 that Australia was a banana republic? We've turned it around and we now we've got think a car the, surplus, is that right?
4: That, that's right, that's right. When I started my career uh, listening, of course, to Peter on Doug Mulray in the morning giving us the market updates, um, the big fear, not from Peter, of course, the big fear was that we were going to go into some sort of uh, foreign debt crisis. Mm. The ABS had just started publishing foreign debt numbers. Uh, the current account surplus, I think, back then, was being reported almost on a monthly basis. So we're getting this constant drip feed of of news that we're heavily reliant on foreigners for livelihood to keep the economy going, and that was resulting in a build-up in foreign debt. And some people were saying that we were going to go into some sort of of Latin American crisis where we had to get bailed out by the IMF. Uh, We even had one uh, economics group talking about a boiling frog, (laughs) <laughs> yes. If you think about it, if you, if you throw a boiling frog into hot into boiling water, th- th- throw yeah, a, a, water. a frog into boiling yeah, throw a a, um, a frog into boiling water, and immediately jumps out. But if you put a frog into cold water and yeah. bring it to boil, and it stays there yeah. and dies, yeah.
0: the
4: analogy the, yeah. the uh, we're a the bunch of dupes, right. a bit yeah. Uh, yeah, we're a bunch of ducks going to get get uh, end up like a boiling frog. Now, of course, mm-hmm. that didn't happen, and this sort of gave me. Um, I guess my scepticism of to stories because I'm constantly being told that this thing is going to bring us down. When the mining boom ends, we're all going to be ruined. Yeah. Uh, when the housing boom ends, we're all going to be ruined. And, yeah. of course, normally there's something that keeps us going. And, of course, since that very low point back in uh, 1986 when Paul Keating said, well, if we don't get this fixed, we'll end up being a banana republic. We have seen a lot of things fix it. We've seen that huge investment in mining investment. Uh, we've seen the flexibility in the Australian dollar Help us out when needed. We've seen uh, our universities come to the party and, and make our universities very attractive for foreign students. We've seen um, we've seen superannuation grow mm. to levels that we never imagined. And many of that money being invested internationally resulting in that flow of income. We can rely on from the earnings from that superannuation. So all of these things have turned us around. So Mm. rather than relying on foreign capital to keep the economy going, we're actually now a provider of foreign capital to the rest of the world, which is a good
2: thing. and, And what's really interesting about this, and I'm surprised that Paul Keating hasn't really boasted about, is that this current account surplus can be put down to him because he was the one who forced us into compulsory superannuation and as the amounts of money grew in superannuation, they then started to invest overseas because it's wise to diversify you know, your, your clients or your members' funds. So Keating, in a sense, has rescued Australia from the boiling frog threat. I must, that's my story tomorrow, Shane, unless Shane gets it up before <laughs> me. We, we, we often race for the uh, sexiest uh, headline down. Uh,
4: <laughs> I think you'll beat me to that one. Even though I, you, you just give me the credit because I gave the idea, but I, I think he has rescued us. This is this is, a, this is yeah. very important that that superannuation does deserve some credit for this. Yeah. And when they, if you go back to that time in the eighties and the nineties, you know, of course, we wanted to make it easier for Australians to save for retirement and take pressure off the pension system and so on. Um, but a motivation. In Eddie's mind, and I think he said this on several occasions, was actually to get national savings up. So, that yeah. if we can save a little bit more, um, then that will reduce our reliance on foreigners. And that's what's happened here. And that, that's a very good thing.
0: Yeah.
4: Um, and it's, it's you know, normally at times like this, the economy slowed down, then people would say, gee whiz, reliance on foreigners. Foreigners are going to withdraw their capital yeah. because the economy slowed down. Yeah, we're going to really struggle here. And of course, that's not an issue. Um, because we have that uh, much reduced current account deficit or narrow surplus. Mm.
3: Now we've got a, a party of, of positivity. Uh, no, Paul can't stand
2: it being an ex banker. <laughs> but go on, Paul.
3: <laughs> it's probably a collective noun for that, uh, Shane, as well, which I can't think of. Let's uh, let's move on to interest rates because uh, we're still seeing a little bit of murmuring about another, further cuts in in February. What's your take on the interest rate sort of uh, outlook at the moment? And
2: Shane is a pessimist on interest rates, which is unusual for you, Shane. So I hope you're
4: I am a pessimist, and I have been uh, pessimist since uh, yeah,
2: you've been on the money.
4: This time a year ago, I mm-hmm. I, I jumped out of the pack a year ago because if you, you think the, the consensus up until the national accounts were released one year ago for the September quarter twenty eighteen was mm. the next move in rates would be up. That's what the Reserve Bank kept telling us, and on that day I saw those GDP numbers coming out. They were very weak, point three percent. I think was the number. Uh, and uh, that prompted me to change my view, and uh, I forecast a, uh, that the Reserve Bank would be cutting interest rates this mm. year, which, of course, they've done. Uh, since then, the economy has come in weaker than even I expected back then, yeah. and if you look at these numbers here, we're still not seeing much growth in domestic final demand, or sorry, private final demand. That part of the economy is struggling. that's part of the economy we need to see stronger. And that, I think, ultimately will will drive the Reserve Bank to cut interest rates again, with another move coming in February, taking the cash rate down to 0.5%, then one more in March, taking us to 0.25%. So I think there is a need here for more stimulus in the economy. I I, I do think it would be preferable to see some fiscal stimulus, uh, but in Mm. the absence of that, uh, the pressure remains on the Reserve Bank.
3: Mm. So so you're in the interest uh, rate... you're in the interest rate cut school still, Shane, is that what...?
4: I am, yeah, I, I, I am still in the interest rate yeah. cut. And, and, Shane... Now, there's going to be a little bit of, you know, you don't want to get too gloomy here, and it just us back to the positivity we had before. Mm-hmm. Um, we we're, were very I, positive, I think as Shane. We go through, <laughs> I think as we go through the year, I think as we go through the year, the global economy will start to improve, and that will eventually start to help the Australian economy... Um, but that's probably a story for the second half of next year. But in the meantime, the pressure's going to remain on the reserve. Mm.
2: Well, well, Shane, on that point, we know that the Americans had to cut interest rates um, uh, early this year because its economy was slowing down. And I would have blamed the trade war and, uh, and its confidence impacts on the US economy, um, I figure there must be a lot of bigger Australian companies that are hesitant to invest because of the trade war, but the trade war hasn't hurt our trade deficit. We're actually doing well. So uh, do you agree that the trade war partly explains why our economy is not doing well?
4: Uh yeah, you put that in a funny way. I know the, I have. I did, idea, but, uh, I
2: it's, a, it's a trap. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a trade war trap. It's
4: sort of trap. Yeah. i am got to get confused in terms <laughs> of what you're actually asking. But I, I I don't think the trade war is having a huge impact on our economy at present. Um, I'd have to say that despite the trade war, when you look at the, the trade numbers, you know, yeah, we, we, we're actually doing pretty well in our <laughs> trade. I mean, the trade war has mainly impacted uh, uh, exports to and from, U.S. and China with respect to each other, Um, but other countries um, haven't been affected anywhere near as much as those two, and then there's been a confidence impact. I think this is probably having a a little bit of a drag on business confidence in Australia, but it's probably more of an issue in the U.S. where confidence has been hit because American companies don't know which country is going to get a tariff next. If you're an Apple, for example, you know if this trade war continues and the tariffs get ramped up, on December the 15th, then Apple will lose out relative to Samsung, which is a uh, foreign competitor, which is perverse in a way. But that, mm. that all leads to a degree of uncertainty amongst American companies as to where to invest. And so I think there's no doubt that the global slowdown we've seen, particularly centered around the US and, uh, and China. And then there's been a flow on of that to Germany to some degree, um, has been mainly due to trade war. Okay. As to, I mean, I I wouldn't. I wouldn't blame the Fed. I wouldn't blame uh, the Europeans. I think it's mainly, mainly due to the trade war. But the impact on Australia, it hasn't been the main factor. And okay. in fact our trade has held up pretty well.
2: What we need you to do, and this is going to be the last question I'll ask you, Paul, might you know, throw another one in. Given that, then, why is the Australian economy growing so slowly? What's the break? Why is the business confidence low? Why is consumer confidence low? Come on, Shane. Give us the answer. <laughs> and be uh, right.
4: I, I, yeah, that, that's, that's a good question. Mm. I, I, I think there's a bunch of things. Firstly, we had a housing construction boom. That's now slowed down, so that's yeah, acting as a drag.
0: Yeah.
4: Uh, then we've seen this long period. You know, we were immune to it up until about a decade ago because of the mining boom, but then now we've sort of got sucked into it, this period of very low wages growth which has adversely affected households. Now, you might argue real wages are still rising. Nominal wages are still going up faster than the rate of inflation. But when it's only 2%, when your wage only goes up 2%, you don't feel as happy when that happens. And so that's weighing on consumer spending. And then we've still got a very high level of underemployment, which sort of forces that to be a bit of a double whammy. And then when the housing cycle slowed down, there's been less turnover. So less people swapping houses, moving houses, means less demand for furnishings and carpeting and what have you when you move from one house to another. So all of those things are weighed on consumer spending and then business investment, I think, just, uh, just still remains fairly, fairly depressed because uh, businesses don't have a lot of pricing power. Um, I think businesses were shocked by the strength in the Aussie dollar up until 2011, so that's still causing them to be a little bit cautious in terms of undertaking investment and all this geopolitical risk, these, these headlines of things going on globally are weighing on business investment as well. So and what, and what all about the come together.
3: What about the election? I mean, um, I, you can understand why that would have been a drag in the first half of the year. Why are we seeing a bit of a – and maybe it's just in the data – we aren't seeing a bit of a rebound post the election when you'd think business would mm. be saying, well, at least we sort of got arguably at least a slightly more business-friendly government.
4: You could say that, and I think there was a knee-jerk uh, boost in confidence, some of the confidence figures after the election, uh, but it was short-lived and I, and I think you could argue that uh, the Royal Commission, the ongoing issues around, you know, banks and what have you, financial organisations, um, the, the issues in the energy sector, all of those things are making businesses a bit cautious as well. Mm. Um, but it's It it, it, it is odd that we're getting hit a lot harder than other countries, and that comes back to this talk of a per capita recession, which, mind you, technically ended last year. But still, we're only looking at per capita GDP growth of 0.2% for the last 12 months, which is less than the US, less than Europe, and less than Japan. So we are getting hit harder than other countries. But I think a lot of that has to do with the housing downturn, which in uh-huh. turn is weighing on consumer spending, uh, whereas those other countries aren't seeing a housing downturn. Their housing downturns were a decade ago.
2: Yeah, and our population increases faster in a lot of the countries that we compare to as well.
4: That's right. Population uh-huh. growth here is 1.6%. Uh, economic growth was one7 There's a bit of rounding in there, but it turns out to be GDP per capita yeah. grows therefore, rose therefore by 0.2%. But in the US, for example, GDP growth for the year to the September quarter was 2%. Population growth is just 06 per So per capita GDP growth is 1.4%. Yeah. You could do similar things in Europe and Japan, where economic growth was just above 1%. Yeah. But population growth is close to zero. Yeah. And those two economies are seeing per capita GDP growth of around 1%. So. Yeah. Whichever way you cut it, on a per capita basis, we are underperforming here. We are doing, are doing relatively poorly.
2: Yeah. When I hear people talking about per capita GDP, I think of Count Dracula. Apparently, Count Dracula <laughs> had a had a, a problem in his um his like his feudal region, and so he invited all of the the poor people to a, a banquet uh, in his his hall. He locked the doors and put it on fire, and he he solved all his unemployment problems. A fire sale solution. I thought, oh, my gosh. I think
4: yeah. you're going to tell me he's going to suck their blood out or
2: something like that. <laughs> well, he, he may well have done that after he cooked them, but it's an extraordinary thing. I, I, hope, I hope it's not true, but it's a, it's a story that I heard many, many years ago and probably t- told to me by an economist who was talk, trying to make economics interesting at the time.
4: It could be. I mean, there's another complication here. We talk about a per capita recession or, or slow per capita GDP growth in Australia, but the share market doesn't take its lead from that. It just likes to see growth.
0: Mm. Because
4: ultimately growth that drives profits. So as long as the economy is still growing, then that should ultimately help uh, help the share market. Um, so having a per capita recession or close to zero per capita GDP growth is not as big a worry for the share market. Mm. But obviously it is for ordinary Australians because they prefer to see their living standards rise rather than, than look a bit stagnant.
3: Well, it sounds it. like we're ending on a note of positivity, no, Shane. You <laughs> he can't help it. He,
2: he's one of the few economists in this country that will, tries to go back to positivity. And that's why we love him so much. Shane Oliver, AMP, Capital, thanks for joining us.
4: Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Paul.
2: Hey. That music, that music says it's time for an ad on The Switzer Show. And this time, because all our conferences are over, let's push the book, Paul.
3: What Be- book is that, Peter?
2: <laughs> the book is called Join the Rich Club. And And by the way, I've just realised it's the perfect Chris Kringle gift. It's not very expensive, $24.95, and we're probably discounting for Christmas. Yes, uh, John Bragg, <laughs> our supporting producer. How much? $20. Well,
3: well that's important, Peter, because yeah. most Chris. Kringle... Kringles. Kringles have a limit of $20. Exactly so right. So it's $19.95, you can, you can feel like you've made the, all the contribution. not cheapskated the Kris Kringle by only buying something costing no. $10, or $11, you can spend 19 for the full, 95 yeah. full amount. And the, the thing, thing is, is,
2: it's a gift that keeps on giving. You know, how many crappy Kris Kringle gifts have you had in your life? Lots. Lots. This is a gift that will keep on giving until you get rich, and I think it's a pretty good gift. How do you, how do you buy it, Paul?
3: Uh, well, like, I'm just going to comment on them. the music, is really driving me mad. But, That's cool. uh, it's, it's cool. That's Look, you cool. go to switch the store, one, one S, uh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, okay.
2: And make sure you do it before Christmas. Okay, our next guest is Glenn Whelans from Robobank, and we're going to be discussing their 2019 food waste report. Welcome, Glenn. Thanks very much. Nice to be with you. So, Glenn, I guess a lot of people are interested in my promo for it. I was talking about the fact that you guys survey food waste. A lot of people wonder why RoboBank does something like that.
5: So, RoboBank, it's it's definitely something that's within the bank's DNA, if you like. So, if you um, look back through the the history of RoboBank, we've been in operation around the world really for about 120 years and it was it was founded for farmers by farmers really mm. to be able to support agriculture. So uh, it's very much part of who we are and what we do and um, creating a sustainable future is, is, is part of the mission of the bank.
3: So let's talk about uh, food waste. Um, Glenn, are we getting better or worse at, at what we're doing in terms of food waste?
5: Well, Peter, that's probably the, the, the depressing news that comes out of uh, this year's report is that after... Uh, a couple of years of, I guess you'd call it, insipid in, improvement. Uh, we've actually gone backwards this this year. So the the grand total is that our estimates have us around about ten point one billion in food waste per household uh, for for the year twenty
2: nineteen. So how do you measure something like that, Glenn?
5: So it's, it's done to um, a survey um, process that we've been doing it for the best part of a. Uh, uh, seven or eight years now. And what we do is we go out and we, we get a representative sample of uh, around about 2,500 everyday Aussie consumers every year and effectively ask them uh, a couple of questions, which is around, firstly, what's your, what's your weekly shop? And then get, get them to estimate how much they, they've been on a weekly basis. And from there, we then do the calculations and weight it back to national population.
2: Mm, okay. And is there a certain trend? Are we throwing away certain kind of food like takeaway food or I know my big problem is that I you know if I go shopping with my wife I might see a whole lot of really interesting fruit and I think yeah let's buy the fruit but then in a busy week yeah I don't come home enough and the fruit doesn't get eaten and then all of a sudden you know the the fruit flies are into it and into the bin it goes. Yeah it's it's
5: definitely that's one element of it so we've got I think for me, there's three key takeouts from this year's report, which really highlight why we're we're heading in the wrong direction on food waste. So the first one is just that natural pre- pressure on population. So we're we're naturally a nation of uh, over 25 million people now, and the latest stats from the ABS say that we're we've got 388,000 more mouths to feed in 2019 than we did 12 months ago. So natural pressure in terms of population is one thing. Uh, The second thing is very much around uh, the generational mix. So what we're finding, and and for me this is probably the most curious stat, is that we've got our younger generations who, through the the broader field work that we do, seem to be the most socially aware of the issues going on around the world. However, uh, they're the ones who are wasting more in 2019. And I think, Peter, to your point, we also seem to be able to find new ways of uh, wasting food and Clearly, that online food delivery service is something that's growing in popularity around Australia. So we've seen about ten percent improvement in that over the past uh, twelve months, and that's proving to be another vehicle in which um, people are, are wasting food. So it's it's not only the traditional ways that you talk about of things uh, getting left over uh, in the fridge and forgotten about or not used by their their use by date, but also we're finding new ways, such as through that uh, online delivery service.
3: Glenn, we both cheered when you talked about those rotten millennials, um, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> he said rotten. I would say challenging, <laughs> challenging. But, but look, um, <laughs> I like millennials. If you're listening, <laughs> what what I did want to come back to is just compare sort of how important are consumers in this? I mean, obviously there's there's food waste in production, there's food waste in. Uh, you know, in restaurants and in the shops, uh, you know, in the, in the big supermarkets. I mean, is it consumers who are the main problem, or is it actually more on the production and, and the distribution of food that we've got to change? The, change the behaviours and how yeah. we all, all work together.
5: Yeah, fantastic question. Because I think there's there's two angles of that, and the first one is that, given the fact that we've got, uh, as I said before, 25 million uh, in population, that's going to have a, few, a huge sway in what trends, what behaviours cascade their way through the economy. So it really is going to have to be, if you like, a consumer-led revolution to make change. If I look at the broader picture, and and there I'll rely on some of the the statistics from the Australian government's uh, 2019 national food waste baseline, and they effectively do a measure from, or an assessment from uh, on-farm production all the way through the, supply chain manufacturing distribution to the household. And, and their headline stats say that uh, in rough terms, 31% of food waste is in that on-farm primary production area. Another 25% is through the manufacturing and processing. And then 34% of it is is due to what we've been as individuals through the household. So you can see from those stats, it's very much a shared responsibility. But, um, but when you consider that, where the where the large mass of twenty five million people here, the the change and behaviour has really got to come from us as individuals.
2: How has the drought affected food waste? Um, I think
5: disturbingly, not a lot. And 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 again, some of the broader stats that we have within the survey is that there is this um, general awareness of. Um, farming and the drought and the impact that have, and that's certainly higher in 2019 than has in previous years. Naturally, um, but the city appreciation for food and food waste has really um, hasn't brought that correlation together. So, in other words, what what is is again a little bit curious about this report is that um, consumers most strongly. Correlate food waste to what does it mean to their hip pocket, rather than it meaning what does it mean in terms of um, the broader environmental impacts or mm. the impact of farming or those elements as well.
2: So, Glenn, um, what do you think households uh, need to think about when planning their grocery purchases or eating out to reduce the the waste problem?
5: Yeah, we've got it, we've got um, a, a, a whole bunch of tips on our au website. But for me, there's there's a number of ones which really come down to discipline around that, that planning phase of the purchase and ordering of food um, in particular. And as, a, as an aside, um, who does it best? The baby boomers seem to do it best in terms of that. And they're also the ones that exhibit that as those best behaviors. So they're the ones who are more, um, more likely to Go to the supermarket armed with a shopping list. They're also the ones who put their hand up and say we we can think um, creatively about leftovers and make it, make um, good meals on subsequent days. Um, they're also the ones who are more likely to just be modest in their um, portion control and, and um, activities like that. So, and also uh, the the end of the, the supply chain, for like of being able to say, "Well, I've got food waste. Do how can I? How can I?"
3: turn it into composting and how do uh i mean the other challenge of course glenn is that as consumers we sort of want supermarkets to present you know the right size piece of fruit and the, the you know nice and shiny and when we don't buy things that look a little bit uh you know not as perfect as they Challenged. need to be but we know that when actually they're dug out of the ground or come off the tree they don't actually look that brilliant so is there something as consumers we can do to sort of encourage the supermarkets to actually service up all the stuff or are we just, uh, you know, we sort of, beyond that, we're just not going to change now how, um, yeah, how people yeah, react I think, to that?
5: Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic observation because it does come down to, um, particularly some of our older generations are, are super keen on things like growers' markets. And, of course, when growers', growers markets are much more likely to um, offer up variable size fruits and Mm. things that may have blemishes on them and so there's a there's a there's a clear um message there that if it if it's fresh and it's natural and it's usable and i think that's um some of the insights that we're getting more broadly is that uh consumers are certainly getting more aware and if we can flip back to our our younger generations they're the ones who are asking a lot more of those questions of where it's come from and when was it produced and how is it produced and all those sorts of questions. So I think, yeah, uh, there's definitely an opportunity to be able to be a little bit more relaxed on um, every piece of fruit being absolutely perfect in terms of design. And I know that um, there's innovation happening across the supply chain and some of those things that we're seeing in other parts of the world is things like variable pricing in supermarkets, which is naturally done through things like uh, um, artificial intelligence, which will say if you've got a, a tub of yogurt, which has got uh, a, two weeks to run when it's used by date, then it's priced at, say, $3, and something that's got two days to run is priced at dollar, and it does those sorts of things automatically. So we're seeing innovation around food waste through the supply chain. But I think your observation is, yet yeah, how do we get better at just being a little bit um, more relaxed on it doesn't need to look absolutely perfect because um, that not so perfect fruit look still is beautiful on the
2: inside. It's oh, such a deep philosophical point <laughs> from a bank <laughs> from a bank in no Glenn. You really have raised the, the 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 high jump bar for bankers. Well done, mate. So what's the what's the website if people want to read more?
5: Yeah, so it's at rubobank.com.au.
2: There it is, a very sensitive new age banker, Glenn Whelan. For your... stick, it, stick it into the millennials, <laughs> right, right. Pete, I think as well. Yeah, well, Glenn, I should, I should finish off by saying, how old are you, just in case people think you're a very biased baby boomer?
5: Um, I would be, I'm, 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 I'm a very young, fifty-three years old, just to put it out there.
2: So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, mate, great to talk to you.
5: Yeah, you too. Thanks again.
2: Okay, I want to make a, a short little um, ad contribution to a, a, a gentleman who was going to be on the program, um, but unfortunately he has a, a few uh, illness issues at the moment. Michael Diamond, the, the great Australian uh, gold medalist shooter at the uh, Atlanta Olympics where he did get gold, uh, he's going to be um, actually you know, in need of a heart transplant mm-hmm. and as a consequence Michael is going to be auctioning off um, his gold medal. Um and so uh, look Paul I, I do if you if, if, have you ever been a shooter in your lifetime you went to a private school I have done school? a little bit of
3: shooting but uh, not to the anywhere near the same Michael degree as, as Michael Diamond but yeah. uh, look it sounds like I think he's uh he's uh it's needed to help for the treatment cost yeah. and uh this auction's coming up I think this week Peter is that right yeah
2: exactly right and I I, I should have made the point I think he's won too he won mm. in Atlanta and he also won in Sydney as well and uh uh, it's the gold medal from Sydney uh, that sold for $72,000 plus um, two years ago and now he's he's selling the Atlanta one. So Michael obviously needs a bit of help. If you're interested, I would suggest you go to the Leonard Joel Private Collections or Leonard Joel's website and I'm sure you'll see how you can bid for that particular um, um, uh, medal. And the auction's in Melbourne on this Friday, is that right, Peter? December 5th, yep, but of course we know in the modern day you can ring through, you can bid online or you can bid over the telephone. So I would contact Leonard Joel if you're interested in giving Michael a hand and helping him out at a time when he clearly needs a, needs a hand. Our next guests are a couple who I've known for some time. I interviewed uh and Bartlett Bragg, uh, many years ago, when I was doing talking business on Qantas, she's a, a quite exceptional businesswoman, and her husband Stephen Bartlett Bragg uh, has a great business, which he thought was probably better placed to be in Europe. And so they pull up stumps, left Australia, and are now living in Barcelona. And uh, so Paul and I want to know what it's like to actually take that big gamble. And Stephen, welcome to the Switzer Show. Thanks, Peter. Good morning. Okay. Now, guys, um, I want to try to set this up because you've done something very unusual for Australians. You know, you've uh, left these shores. You're now going to live in Barcelona. You even made the the ultimate uh, or took the ultimate gamble. You sold your house in Pannington, and uh, you've pretty well committed yourself to Europe at a time when the Eurozone is in some Sort of struggles of kinds. So let's ex- explain. First of all, and you have a business called the Ripple Effect Group. Explain that.
6: Yeah, it's an Australian-based company. See, that's how I've, I've left my business in Australia. Well, sorry, I haven't left it. My business is Australian-based. Mm. Um, we, uh, in the business, work with people and technology, new modern technologies for organisations, and uh, we design what well, we would say smarter ways of working, ways to connect people and technology. Um, so really I guess I'm walking the talk. Mm. Collaborative platforms and new ways of working can be achieved with the right technology and the right mindset. So give us so, the, I'm
0: yeah.
2: so give us an example then of what you might do that that has uh, ultimately a big impact on the business.
6: So, with many businesses, they've got, some businesses have told us they have over 200 pieces of software. Uh, Nobody knows where to file a document. Nobody knows how to share it with other people. So, what we would do is have a look at how to make that most effective, try to reduce the number of software options, although not making anybody sort of go, I love my piece of software. So, we work with large organizations. Uh, They used to be called intranets. I think that's an old term now. Now it's just how do I get my work done in the most efficient way? And and that's what we like to be able to do and challenge the ways of traditional working.
2: Okay. Now, Stephen, explain to us your business.
1: Yes, so so our business is we're (coughs) we're developing a um, technology platform for airlines that will enable airlines to... Better engage with their travellers directly. Um, the travellers will be able to share their travel insights with the airline, which will allow the airline to be able to uh, develop and offer value products and services. Um, and one of the areas, airlines are quite marginal businesses, as we know. One of the areas that the airlines are missing out on is the end-to-end traveller insights of what the travellers need now. So, to give you an example, a traveller might book a, a taxi or might book an Uber might book a particular hotel, um, might, might, it, it, and the airlines tend to only capture from the moment that they check in to the moment they pick up their bags in terms of the information from the traveller. There's about a $780 billion sector that airlines are barely getting 3% of that for the what's coming in the industry, ancillary revenues. So we're developing a platform that will allow airlines to tap into the ancillary revenue market.
2: So it means, it means effectively you're you're increasing the potential. Um, what's the share of wallet the financial industry uses when it comes to their financial planning clients? It's, I guess when it comes to the traveller, the airlines such as Qantas, Virgin, and whatever, they can actually get a bigger clip of the ticket on the way through of a traveller.
1: Exactly, they the, they get a view of the traveller's end-to-end travel needs. And they capture they, they're able to capture and offer services for those end-to-end travel needs, not just the products and services that they they offer themselves.
2: Okay, so they're two businesses. The, the the part of the story I'm interested in, apart from the fact that I hope your businesses do well, is that you actually made a big decision to leave Australia to set up in Spain. Who wants to explain why you did that?
1: Yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe maybe the catalyst was, was East Two. So East Two um, is, has got offices in Hong Kong, in Hong Kong London, and Barcelona. Um, we, we, as I mentioned earlier, we sort of provide technology platforms for airlines, and clearly there are a lot more airlines in Europe than there are in, in, in Australia. Um, so the focus was that we, we needed uh, access to the North American market, Asia, and Europe at once. So we decided that Europe was a, was a good central point to be able to access those markets um, that are important to us too.
2: Okay, so...
6: That's, that's the official side. Uh, the, the other side of it, I think, Peter, is we're both at a point um, in our businesses and our life where we've always loved travelling. Stephen has a gypsy-type background. And it was just an opportunity arose. There was a window there and we said, let's do this. Because if we don't do it in five years' time and we look back and say, why didn't we go when we had an opportunity? So I think it's also taking those opportunities when everything looks like it lines up and you've got a window. Let's just do it.
2: And, and so has it, has it represented a risk to the business in, in actually doing something like this?
1: From these two perspectives, absolutely not. I think um, we chose Barcelona for, for a number of reasons, but um, primarily because it's very well-connected. Uh, put, put aside the weather, which is, which is great as well for, for Europe, but it's a, it's a well-connected city. You can get pretty much anywhere nonstop to North America and Asia, as well as obviously in Europe. So it's made a lot of sense. Um, I clearly could not be engaging with the airlines that I'm engaging with at the moment. That easily from Australia. Um, so from a, from a business perspective, it's a very nice connected network hub for us. Hmm.
6: Um, from my perspective, I think there was a risk um, that my clients are Australian-based, yeah. uh, my team are Australian-based, although distributed, we've always worked flexibly. Um, I have team in Brisbane, Sydney, you know, like all over the place. So that was not a challenge on how we worked, but the fact that I wasn't present in the time zone meant we had to have a discussion about how that was going to work. All of my clients have been hugely supportive, dare I say, partially jealous that, gosh, I wish I could just do that. Mm. Um, and really, I guess I'm eating my own dog food. We talk about changing the way we work, we talk about flexibility, and I'm showing them that actually it's not impossible. Time zones, pain in the neck, but other than that, that's not different when you have to deal from Australia with Europe or USA, any other, which we do on a daily basis anyway.
0: Okay. So,
2: So tell us as Australians doing something like this, giving up your Australian way of life to live the life in Spain has it been challenging or has it been really enjoyable like a lot of people dream it might be?
6: I think I'll, I'll, I might start that one. Stephen's very well-travelled from uh, his childhood. So for me, as a really pure Australian, it's quite, it was challenging. Uh, at the same time, it's exciting and stimulating. The support systems that you tap into before you go, the planning that's required, I think, is essential. It made our transition here absolutely, well, pretty much seamless, I think. Um, And Stephen, you might want to talk about.
1: Yeah, so from a a business perspective, I think what was key was to to line up the right support structure, and there's actually a a tremendously uh, useful company called Polyglot, which is actually an Australian-based company. Uh, An Australian company that's now represents in Europe, and they help companies like ours set ourselves up, meet all the legislative requirements, all the all the necessary things mm-hmm. to set visas, passports, uh, working permits, um, and we also we also tapped into. It's Catalan, but most countries have it as well. Is the Trade and Investment Bureau in Catalonia called Axia, and they were very helpful as well in in helping us sort of set up our businesses uh, here. So. If you get all that right and line all that up, it's a relatively easy process, but it does take a bit of time. So I think we crossed the T's and dotted the I's, it took about six or seven months. Now, but, um, but, but you do need that
3: structure. Now, Barcelona, obviously, it's a lovely city, but it's also um, the centre of Catalonia. Has the um, sort of the separatist movement and some of the uh, protests, have they uh, upset or made your life as, as in business harder? How, how's that playing out in terms of. Uh, how it impacts you and other uh, expatriates in, in, in that part of the world? Uh,
6: there's a couple of um, aspects to that question and it's really, really interesting. You What you see on the news represents, uh, I guess, the same, we watch the bushfires in Sydney and think, oh my God, Sydney's burning down. Mm. Um, in reality, yes, you've got a lot of smoke, but the whole city's not burning. The... Separatist movement is a 50 50 split in Catalonia. It's a bit like Brexit, it's 50 50. Um, want to stay, want to leave. So, But for me, I'm just, to understand the culture, you need to understand what the movement is about and what it is that they're trying to achieve and why. It's not just because they're being a pain in the neck. And I think as a foreigner showing interest um, has opened a lot of doors for us as well. We're, we're not trying to push our opinion on anyone we're actually trying to understand and also as an Australian we don't have long tribal histories Um, this goes back hundreds of years and we don't have that in Australia we have states and you know we say things about other states and it's sort of like talking about your cousins your current family it's not hundreds of years of tribal disputes and that's what some of this is sort of based on um, but day to day, it's peaceful. We're, there's been a couple of, they call them manifestations here. We love them. The passion about anything, whether it's from um, women's rights through to the pensioners not okay. getting a fair deal, immigration, immigration um, hundreds of thousands of people will come up in an afternoon and you'll find yourself in this enormously peaceful rally um there's just this small very small minority group that have caused some problems lately with um, burning things and trashing it but a lot of them were foreign far right-wing neo-nazi types that came in and were arrested and have been sent back to where they came from so it's not it's not violent but it's it's a cause of tension mm. but I think there's hope that that isn't going to affect business quite the way um, everybody's making it out to be. People just want to get on and do things.
3: And the but one of the uh the impact has been. I think what we've had four Spanish elections in three years. Is that right? So is, is that uh, yeah? How does that? What does it's, that do for business confidence?
6: Makes me feel like home.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true well we're a bit more stable now <laughs> yeah, true. We,
2: we swap prime ministers but we don't have that, so many elections that's for sure well, one, last, one, no, one last question guys before we, uh, we wrap it up you know um, the, the eurozone has its problems you've got the Brexit issues as well in, in actually trying to do your business Stephen in particular are you miles better off there than miles away trying to do it out of Australia
1: no, no no question about that um, purely but I, I guess Peter largely because of the size of the market and the number the number of potential clients that we have access to mm. um, so, so airlines are still wanting to operate they're still wanting to, to to become more efficient they want new solutions they want new markets they want new revenues um, so all that sort of political instability in many respects um, helps us because they're looking for, solutions that will generate new revenues and be more productive for the airline. Um, So for us, it's very much a case of being closer to where our clients potentially are. So a lot of those undercurrents um, don't really affect us.
6: And I think to Stephen's point, one of the challenges is that we had strong business networks in Australia um, and contacts that we didn't have here. So you have to work at, there's a lot of, they work on relationships and talking and meeting and they here. So it's tapping into that to re, uh, rebuild those relationships. I think that's really important, but it's not difficult to do, but it takes effort to find.
2: Mm. Well, guys, uh, thanks for joining us on the program. I've got to say the one challenge I have in Spain is that, do they eat late.
6: i know i know it's a challenge for us too (laughs) it
1: takes takes us us a while to understand the midday is 2 (laughs) p.m
0: and i
6: miss breakfast that early (laughs) i miss our breakfast at 7 a.m it normally starts here at 10 with a sherry or a beer
2: it's unbelievable isn't it (laughs) guys thanks for joining us
6: thanks peter
1: thanks paul thanks paul thanks
2: peter well it's a show paul would you ever do that Pull up stumps, leave your beloved Sydney and live overseas and run a business
3: um, but probably not to a country where I wasn't fluent in the language I mm. think it's a we I don't know if we got to test their there's, there's Spanish and yeah. I think they also have a dialect in Bas, in Barcelona or any, don't they which Barcelona. is Barcelona <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah well in fact I, I yeah. do know
2: Stevens is clearly an Englishman with that wonderful mm. voice of his, but he was born in Chile his mm. father um, I think Work for, for the East India Company or, or one of those famous British organisations and so he actually does speak uh, very fluent
3: Spanish. Well it's a big big call to make so wish them uh, lots of luck and mm. uh, I hope it works out and I, I, look, I don't think I'd be courageous enough Peter but mm. uh, good luck to them for trying.
2: Well from my point of view it's always great for us when we go to Barcelona. Well
3: that's the show for this week. Uh,
2: thanks for joining us ladies and gentlemen and Paul thank you for joining us as well. Thanks Peter see you next week. <laughs>